Welcome to the first of Our Generation for Inclusive Peace podcast, a space that will be used to explore key themes and issues for youth in peace and security. This episode is a recording of OGIP's launch event that was hosted at the London School of Economics Center for Women, Peace and Security. The event introduces OGIP, presents the research and perspective of youth advocates, and covers discussion on a wide range of topics from diverse participation to feminist solidarity to funding for youth organizations. We hope you enjoy. Please do continue the conversation online by following us at at rgenpeace and using the hashtag speakyourpeace. Hi, everybody. Uh, Thank you so much for attending this event to mark the launch of our generation for inclusive peace. Uh, My name is Florence Follacar, and I am one of the co-founders of OGIP. I'm going to start off the event by giving a short introduction um, on who OGIP are and what we're working on before we open up the space for a wider discussion on some key questions. By holding this event, we hope to open a conversation about the role that feminist youth action can have in the realm of peace and security. As those working in the sector will already be aware, the Women, Peace and Security Agenda and the Youth, Peace and Security Agenda have encouraged increased attention to the role, needs, priorities and perspectives of women and young people in conflict transformation and peace building processes. OGIP is positioned at the nexus of these two agendas, but aims to push both further, building on their activist roots and centering inclusivity, intersectionality and representation in our approach to understanding peacebuilding. Today's event, which we really hope will be the first of many, will introduce the aims and missions of OGIP um, and explore the needs for intersectional feminist youth-led initiatives in this space and also discuss our work so far and how to strengthen our approaches. OGIP uh, emerged from the first LSE Masters cohort in Women, Peace and Security. As a group of young feminists, activists and advocates, we had the privilege of engaging in insightful and challenging conversations about the Women, Peace and Security and Youth, Peace and Security agendas with experts from across the field. Emerging from this space of learning and research into professional policy and programme spaces, we became increasingly aware of the need to bring these conversations into our daily work. Furthermore, we were confronted with the continued challenges of ensuring true diversity and representation in peace and security spaces. Whilst we heard many senior colleagues espouse the fundamental importance of youth participation, this rarely translated into empowering working practice for young people or the opening up of these spaces for diverse youth affected by conflict to address the issues that were impacting them. In our experience, many meetings discussing the implementation of Women, Peace and Security and Youth, Peace and Security had the only people under 30 present taking minutes or sat as observers, rather than encouraging and validating youth perspectives and situating young people as active contributors, centering youth voices. More often than not, the young people given space to participate in these settings, both as young professionals and young advocates, are Western-educated, multilingual and of a certain class and background. Linked to this is also the precarity that the majority of employers in this sector put upon their young staff through unpaid internships, short fixed-term contracts and last-minute deployments or contract renewals. Though perhaps not unique to this sector, these challenges create very real barriers to entry in a professional space that professes to be working towards direct, meaningful and equal participation. Equally important is the need for the engagement and participation of young people directly affected by conflict to share their knowledge, expertise and experiences and to shape the conversations had in these spaces and the actions that come out of them. 
More often than not, these young people are denied entry into these spaces, or, if engaged, are treated in a tokenistic manner and are not given the tools or space to actively and meaningfully participate. OGOP was established to support young activists, youth organisers and young professionals alike, all already doing incredible work in these spaces. As founders, we consider, consider our positions in OGOP to be temporary. We hope to establish a strong foundation with networks and values based on the fundamental need to make current structures in peace and security more inclusive, intersectional and decolonised. We aim for contributors to OGIP's work to take this initiative on and grow it into the organisation that youth feminist peace, peace activists around the world need. Our connections to LSE Centre's LSE's Centre for Women, Peace and Security remain strong, both in terms of the intellectual, intersectional feminist grounding that our practice is shaped by, as well as the continued support from the centre, for which we are absolutely enormously grateful. However, we also need to acknowledge that our emergence in this elite academic space has and continues to pose a challenge in terms of achieving our aim to diversify the voices contributing to high-level debates on women, peace and security and youth peace and security and to challenge the perception of who actually is considered an expert in these spaces. We are the products of this system, which is why we are stood here being listened to, and we want to take this opportunity to challenge that system and push for real and equal diversification. One of the themes that we actually want to put, you, put to you today is how we can both capitalise on the incredible knowledge and connections in these spaces, whilst deliberately and effectively opening up the space for young women and feminists already living and working in fragile contexts to take ownership of the conversation and to lead our thinking as an organisation. It is these young women who have critical insight and skills that are essential for reaching inclusive and sustainable peace. OGIP's mission is to make current structures, policy and practice in peace and security spaces more inclusive, intersectional and decolonised. Engaging with the women, peace and security and youth, peace and security agendas, OGIP platforms the experiences and perspectives of young and diverse people to challenge exclusive spaces and to push these agendas further. We believe in interdisciplinary feminist research, outreach and advocacy as, as essential tools for advancing inclusive peace and security. By integrating young voices into peace and security conversations, we aim to develop responsive and relevant agendas that reflect the concerns of younger generations and demand inclusive and sustainable peace. To achieve our aim, we have built ourselves across three pillars that will enable us to support young people working to build inclusive peace, to platform their perspectives and to use these arguments to push for more effective policy and practice. Through our research pillar, we will publish a biannual research series consisting of work by contributors who align with the values of OGIP. The theme of each research series will be selected from public suggestions by the contributors of the previous series. An important aspect of this is that we do not solely mean the production of research in the traditional academic sense. Whilst we welcome analytical research papers, of course, OJP also strives to platform a wide range of mediums of expression. We're looking for art, photography, poems, stories, blogs, vlogs, music, really any form that enables young people to share their opinions and feelings on conflict and peace. Alongside the research series, we will also continue to publish ongoing blogs and shorter submissions on any theme and in response to developments in the peace and security space. Our second pillar is advocacy. 
Women, peace and security efforts are dominated by older generations and are largely shaped by institutions from the global north. Too often, young people are left out of women, peace and security efforts or are at best an afterthought. The same issues are present in the lack of a comprehensive gender perspective in youth, peace and security. Through the advocacy pillar, OGIP will work to integrate youth perspectives into the women, peace and security agenda and for gender equality to be put at the heart of the youth, peace and security agenda. We will do this by working cooperatively with like-minded advocacy organisations on global initiatives, producing relevant and timely policy papers to provide youth-driven feminist commentary on peace and security, and by establishing a network of young people working on these agendas. Whilst many networks do currently exist, there is no unique space for young people working on these agendas to come together collaborate and advocate for change and we really hope that the network that we're producing will fill this gap. Underpinning both of these pillars is our belief in the fundamental importance of partnerships and collaboration. As an intersectional feminist initiative we aim to acknowledge, build upon and work alongside the incredible activists that have been engaged in this work and mission before us. As such our third pillar is partnerships and outreach. The team has been working to build connections with organisations and individuals working in different contexts on the ground um, and to explore how we can most effectively contribute to each other's work to further advance the women, peace and security and youth, peace and security agendas. All of this leads us to today's event, um, which we hope will be an informative introduction into who we are as OGOP and how we work. We also hope that today is the beginning of a broader conversation about how young people globally can most effectively and ethically collaborate to strengthen our work and further our joint aims. Today, we will hear from some of the youth advocates and contributors engaged with OGOP on their experiences, themes of work and reflections. We will then open up for a participatory discussion between everyone in the room and online addressing themes including the importance of diverse participation, the marginalisation of youth voices and using an intersectional feminist lens in peace and security. We would also like to take this opportunity to include a trigger warning that in the second presentation there will be references to sexual violence. So moving on to our first speaker this afternoon, which is Katrina, um, who is a young peace advocate. Um, she's the communications and programs coordinator for the Global Network of Women Peace Builders um, and is also a co-founder of the Canadian Council of Young Feminists. She holds a master's in peace and conflict studies with a focus on the implementation of the UN Security Council resolutions 1325 and 2250. Uh, Katrina will be speaking on the topic, the importance of diverse participation in peace and security spaces, what a youth and intersectional feminist lens brings to the debate. Please do welcome Katrina. Thank you so much. Can everyone hear me? Yeah, yes, we hear you well. Perfect. So thank you so much, uh, Florence and everyone from our generation for Inclusive Peace for inviting me and reaching out uh, for collaboration. I'm very excited to be here virtually with you. Uh, and to be part of this you know, global campaign for the larger inclusion of young people in, in terms of uh, a feminine, bringing feminist and youth lens to peace and security. So um, I, was, I started working on this uh, with Ojib with, uh, in terms of the research series. So some of you may have read the piece, and this is, I guess, where I need to do a trigger warning about sexual violence because the piece focuses on one of the young women with whom I work in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, who has 
uh, experience sexualized violence. Um, so as the program coordinator for a program called the Young Women for Peace and Leadership, which is now in the Democratic Republic of Congo, South Sudan, uh, Indonesia, Bangladesh, the Philippines, and soon to be Ukraine and Uganda, the program focuses on the inclusion of young women, <coughs> primarily, in peace and in leadership. So bringing and bridging the gap between international spaces and international policy frameworks regarding youth peace and security and women peace and security, bringing that to the ground and vice versa, bringing the young women to those policy spaces. So the co-authored, uh, I like to refer it as co-authored piece with Jean C, who um, is one of the members of the Young Women for Peace and Leadership in the DRC, really talks about how young women want to and can take control of their own narratives. So Jean C has generously offered to share her story of sexualized violence and been open, and she has been, and I've known Jean C for over five years now, and she's consistently been a leader in terms of showing what young people can do, even though they are in situations that um, have mar marginalized them further, have made them so-called victims, and have put them in situations of further oppression. So Jean-Ci um, talks a lot about healing and the changing of the narrative in terms of victim to survivor. I think it's very important to mention this in terms of the discussion today because um, I, as an Indigenous woman from Canada, do not have the same experience as Jean-Ci, but in many ways can relate to her experience of you know, colonization, the um, outcome of post-colonialism, and the, the different sexualized violence that is occurring in these post-colonial states. Canada right now, for example, is going through a very difficult time with our missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. Uh, there was an inquiry into this. There, there's a lot, a lot going on in terms of advocacy from young people um, on the ground. So this is kind of how I see um, this coming into the conversation. Um, and I want to kind of talk a little bit about how Jean-Cy has seen her shift from feeling as a victim to now owning uh, this narrative of survivor, thriver, change maker. So in 2017, we, uh, this had been three years now that the program was running in the DRC, and one of the strong aspects of the program is very much that it is youth-driven and really much uh, youth-focused. So the young people in, on, in each of the countries get to uh, kind of decide what they want to work on in terms of capacity and leadership training in addition to the training that we provide on the different Security Council resolutions. And so uh, when we talked to the young people and the young women in 2017, we said, what do you want to focus on and what will help you in terms of your advocacy and overall in terms of gaining and attaining your rights as young women? And they told us that they wanted to establish micro-businesses because they see economic independence and economic autonomy as the way to claim agency. And so now, um, three years later, I'm happy to report that there are over nine micro-businesses across the province of North Kivu, which, is, which borders Rwanda, 
um, and the young women have successfully been able to make revenue out of that. And they have reported, and this is why Jean-Cy is so important to this discussion, that this has really shaped how other members of the community have seen them and how they perceive themselves. So it's really shifting how they claim their own agency based on this independence and this autonomy from the revenue stream that they're able to generate. I've been asked to talk a little bit about the importance of diverse participation in peace and security spaces um, and what youth and intersectional lenses bring to the debate. So I think personally that Jean-Ting is one of these examples of how bringing these uh, diverse perspectives really shapes and shifts how we are in terms of those working on the ground able to help people if there is no local ownership in terms of peace and security especially working with young women or with youth there is no way that the work and the programming can be sustainable which is why the model of the young women for peace and leadership in my opinion and from what i've seen is much more sustainable the young women, for example, organize their own literacy trainings in rural communities. They decide how often they need to be going to rural communities. They tell us and with us shape the program. And that's really the key, I think, to development work and different work in, in, in countries and situations that are conflict affected. The other thing is to recognize the experiences in terms of intersectionality. The challenges and the solutions need to be developed in all aspects uh, with the local people, with the young women. And I can't stress enough, and I don't think I need to tell all of you because I already think you know and believe this. But and nevertheless, I will say I think we need to have um, implementation, development, and monitoring. We need young people at that table. We need them to be at all levels of development in terms of, inclu of inclusive peace and security initiatives. I think um, this is again, in terms of the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls uh, situation in Canada, there's a parallel again that can be made um, with the inquiry that was happening uh, and that was concluded in June last year. There were a number of calls to action that were required by our government um, to implement over almost three, almost 300 calls to action actually. And this is where I think as an indigenous woman, I very much struggle because I am working in a situation that is conflict affected in an overtly conflict affected area in the Congo. And even at home, I don't really know how to push for uh, peaceful solutions within a context that uh, we often consider non-conflict affected. Canada is seen you know, internationally as a very peaceful country, but there is much more to be done in terms of the right of our Indigenous people. There's hundreds of protests going on right now in Canada, um, and it's, it's very disheartening to see that a lot of politicians and decision makers are put, pushing Canadian young, young people, excuse me, and Indigenous young people to the side. Um, but nevertheless, I've also been asked to speak about a little bit how um, to communicate the need for diverse perspective to policymakers. Um, I think I want to raise one of the examples that I think will be successful in terms of what is going on in 2020 with the multiple anniversaries with the UN Security Council resolutions on women, peace and security, youth, peace and security, and the review of the Beijing Platform for Action which is um, the still to this day, the most progressive women's rights 
framework document um, and is celebrating, I guess, its 25th anniversary and there is a call for global commitment and review of this platform. So the Global Network of Women Peace Builders, in terms of trying to um, advocate on a global level, bring the voices from the field to the policymakers and shift again the, and include diverse perspectives, has created and initiated um, a Beijing platform for women, peace and security and youth peace and security called an Action Coalition, of which I believe our Generation for Inclusive Peace is actually a member. So the participation is essentially to mobilize and coordinate messaging to emphasize very much the monitoring and the accountability of decision makers who are responsible for implementing women's rights, youth rights, and including young people and young women, especially within the global and local and national frameworks. I think it's extremely important to remember that, and Florence, you mentioned this in your remarks, that tokenism is one of our biggest um, downfalls in, term of, in terms of including young people and considering youth lenses. Um, in Canada and in many places, a lot of decision makers have created youth councils. Um, these are hand-picked individuals and often don't have the same experiences as most of marginalized rural or remote young people. And so this is where the Canadian Council of Young Feminists was created. And the point of the Canadian Council for Young Feminists is to bridge the gap between decision makers, global citizenship, and young people, giving more access to spaces. Instead of saying that we have to pull up a seat at the table, we want to widen the table. Instead of saying that uh, we should consult with someone or consult with the youth group, we want the development of programming with the youth group. So in policymakers need to be accessible. Youth need to mobilize and be ready to seize these opportunities, which is where you know the advocacy component of our generation for inclusive peace is so important, and the partnerships are also so important. But at the end of the day, there also needs to be dedicated funding from policymakers, from governments, from entities, from the private sector to be able to support the voices of the young people, the voices of those who are most marginalized, which are often young people. Uh, and I will end, because I'm conscious of time, by saying that young people, especially young women, experience at the very least double marginalization, as you know. And so it is incumbent on us, those who have access and resources, to make more seats available at those tables. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Katrina, and you pulled on some really interesting examples there and talking about funding and access to spaces and widening of the table. And I think something that you mentioned that is really important to note on is young people's participation at every single level of decision making. Um, so it's really interesting to hear your experience. Thank you for uh, sharing your knowledge um, and expertise with us. And thank you to Gentil um, for sharing um, her experiences um, and what she's been uh, undertaking as part of the Global Network for Women Peace Builders programme. So next up, um, as our second speaker, uh, we have Alia, who is an Egyptian women's rights and gender advocate. She holds a master's degree in gender and development from Cairo University and has a background in the intersect between the gender, uh, gender and the media. Sorry. Uh, she was previously the communications manager at Harassmap, 
uh, which is an incredible and award-winning initiative that combats sexual violence in Egypt. She uses social media to raise awareness about women's rights, um, and she has also worked as a reporter um, and as a trained media, trained media professionals and media student, students on how to go about gender-sensitive reporting. She will be speaking on the topic of her research uh, from the OGIP research series on preventing sexual violence in conflict um, and reflecting on what a youth perspective can bring to the debate, in particular with regards to media representation of young people and specifically young women. Ali, if you'd like to unmute yourself and go ahead, that would be fantastic. Hello everyone and thank you so much for the introduction and for including me in this uh, research series uh, and for the help of the team of the OGIP. This is a very interesting uh, discussion that we're having here. And um, before getting into my uh, research topic and talking a little bit about media representation of sexual violence, I just wanted to dig a little bit into why the youth perspective is important, maybe relating a little bit to the Egyptian context um, while we're talking in both scenarios. So I, I believe the revolution in Egypt, when it happened, it was generally led by youth and it was a moment of momentum for youth because it was so long, the country of old men ruling, and for young women it was doubly uh, uh, special and doubly momentary because this was the time that women felt like they can participate in the political life and in negotiations and really have a seat on the table while pushing for peaceful protests. And this, uh, after the overthrow of Mubarak, continued in the form of advocacy from women rights groups afterwards in 2013, uh, because there was a backlash against an Islamist government led by the Muslim Brotherhood. And this was the second time that was um, special for also young women to participate because this time in 2013 it was about certain rights taken from them in the name of Islam and claiming that uh, passing on these laws uh, according to the Muslim Brotherhood was liberating for uh, Egypt but it was on the price of the agenda of uh, women rights for, for Egyptian women so this was a moment for Egyptian women and women rights advocates at the time. And uh, getting into intersectional feminist organization, because I believe this is on the rise and it's so important, I believe youth engagement in the debates on women, peace and security does in, uh, ensure an inclusive perspective and it does include a more participatory approach to hear from young feminist issues. I have to say that in Egypt right now, there's a huge debate on the knowledge of veteran or senior, senior feminists, at, as they call them in Egypt sometimes, is that uh, they are there and they have more um, opportunities. But sometimes uh, the debate is that whether um, in leadership positions, which should be more uh, included, should be the young feminists who are aware of certain things uh, related, for example, to social media awareness and communication and, and the social media trends that sometimes backfire when it comes to talking about feminist issues or should it be veteran um, women who have the knowledge and I believe this discussion is important and it's good to weigh pros and cons of each um, segment or, or group but it doesn't mean an exclusion of veteran women for example if we give young feminists opportunities to advance the discussion on women rights they will bring something new into the table and I mentioned social media because being into talking about why uh, um, I chose to talk about media representation is 
in globally speaking, media has a very important role in shaping our norms, our values, our beliefs and everything. But in the case of social media, um, th this is also a very important part, maybe uh, talking about the example of Egypt, uh, which are generally social media user friendly and they use social media all the time. And when happens uh, that a, se a sexual harassment incident happens or very uh, graphic uh, mob assault, for example, happens, people take to social media to discuss it. And usually what comes out of it is memes that normalize sexual violence or they can even create jokes, making fun of the victim, uh, blaming her for what she was wearing. And this is why it's not just something that people use for fun, fact the access that women have to um, the public sphere. And this is why uh, I chose to talk about uh, this topic. Um, so again, my pitch is about the media representation of sexual violence and how problematic media portrayal and the reinforcement of rape myth and victim blaming feeds into the continuous practice of violence against women and accordingly leads to an exclusion and uh, stereotyping of women in the public sphere, as I mentioned. And especially in the wake of the Me Too era and seeing the amount of victim blaming that influenced a lot of women not to speak up and the reinforcement of this culture where women didn't know who would believe them. The media is doing interviews with them, but then the next day they see themselves in a way that is not nuanced, is not fact-based and victimizing to uh, the survivors, sometimes making them look like uh, either angels or demons. So it's either that they are the perfect victim, they have to tell the, the journalist every single detail of what happened during the, the very violent incident, or they will be uh, sometimes labeled as whatever the, the, the person who's writing the story wants it to look like. And sometimes that's reinforced by victim blaming, as I mentioned. Um, as a woman who personally uh, uh, saw how the the reporting field and how newsrooms works in Egypt or elsewhere, I think it's very obvious that if it's male-dominated, then getting stories about sexual harassment or about sexual violence in a nuanced fact-based manner would, would be very challenging. So this is why the lack of nuanced fact-based reporting is based on how the editor-in-chief thinks, how the person who's reading the story thinks, who pitches the story in the first place. So getting a story about um, certain sexual violence incidents that happened that happened was a lot of times shut down in the face when I mentioned that we should report about it. Even talking about female suicide terrorism, for example, was something that I was told doesn't exist. So it's it's about the guy the guy in the who's in the room who doesn't even fact check and he uh, accepts or does not accept the story and if he does accept it, it, it will be from his own angle. Uh, which is why the lack of this policy um, uh, while reporting about sexual violence is as problematic as anything else. Um, so, um, while monitoring the media in, in Egypt on a daily basis while I was working, it made me see how women were discouraged to take the lead and accordingly the media, um, I started to see it in, in real life examples, had a role to exclude women from the public sphere. And a shocking example when I was working with Harassmap was that I saw a popular news website a couple of uh, uh, times report about mob uh, sexual violence incident where hundreds of women would be 
um, surrounded by men trying to strip them down from their clothes and everything was very, very graphic. I'm sorry if I'm going into details, but it was a very horrendous uh, incident and the reporting was very demeaning to women where they had a top 10 uh, tip for women to avoid such an incident during the feast, which is a holiday in Egypt. Uh, because of the the crowdness and etc., they 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 wrote first of all, don't leave the house during the feast or the holiday. Second of all, if you are going to go, please take a man with you or something. And then tip number three was dress more conservatively. And I think that if we talk about the context in Egypt and everywhere, sexual violence happens and conflict happens on the street, uh, regardless of what the victim or what the survivor was wearing. So. The person who writes this, of course, doesn't refer to any facts, doesn't refer to the fact that women who wear a full face veil still get sexually harassed, still get raped in, in again, uh, so many um, cases. So this non-nuanced, uh, fact-based manner did contribute to people uh, sometimes stopping their daughters from going out on the street during this holiday. And it was a trend for a couple of years, and I believe it is still going on right now. So, um, again, to conclude what I, I, I'm hoping to let out when I was talking about um, this in my research, is to um, discuss how globally this type of media cover, coverage reports about sexual violence uses certain themes that reinforce patriarchal norms. They can be in the term of sensational coverage, so... Uh, making it look like uh, an incident uh, with a video to increase clicks and traffic to the website, for example, or over-representation of false allegations on the survivors. And so like I was talking, if she doesn't, if her story doesn't add up from the journalist's point of view, we will make her look like a liar in the story. And of course, victim blaming or objectifying of women by describing what she was wearing. So. For example, saying she was wearing tight jeans uh, in the headline kind of shows that she's uh, responsible for what happened because she was asking for it. Uh, and uh, again, such patriarchal norms are reinforced by those themes in the media coverage and in turn impact sexual violence against women. And in, par in parallel, the, the media can purposely uh, represent sexual violence in ways that would appeal to all of these patriarchal norms. Um, and in, in part of the, the discussion on how to stop this, there are so many things that, that hopefully should happen globally to affect this media coverage. But sometimes, uh, like I mentioned, maybe from the newsroom's perspective, having a policy to stop journalists from posting uh, news that are uh, based on what they think of the survivor, but checking their facts and, and using background of percentages uh, about sexual violence in this country helps the, the reader understand what this is really about. And of course, um, working with the media, so I've been working on training media professionals and students who will later on become producers and journalists and uh, whatever they choose to, to be when they grow up to understand gender-sensitive reporting. And it doesn't need to be boring and like fat, um, research for them it sounds not appealing so there are a couple of examples that we show them in this training to show them how it can be engaging and, and interesting but at the same time it needs to be gender sensitive and not to reinforce any of these patriarchal norms 
Uh, and thank you again for your time. Um, I'm happy to answer any of your questions. Thank you, Aria. Um, that was very interesting. And some recurring themes coming up about continuums of violence, uh, continuums of conflict. I think that's something that was picked up in the first presentation as well, is that there is not this single bound space that is a conflict context. Um, and as you, know, you started to discuss at the beginning, Alia, um, around the um, riots and uprisings that happened in Egypt um, and sexual violence in relation to that, I would encourage you all to go and read Alia's piece that's been published by ODIP, uh, where she unpacks that continuum of violence and continuum of conflict um, uh, further. Um, but for now, we would now like to pass to those of you in the room um, to uh, discuss some of the themes that we have uh, heard from our OGIP contributors um, and uh, around the values of OGIP as an organisation. Um, I'm now going to pass over to Charlotte who is going to be chairing this discussion and um, please feel free um, to open up the space. Um, we will be passing the microphone for recording but if you do not want to be recorded that is absolutely fine, just don't take the microphone um, and we'll make sure that you're excluded from the podcasting. Hi everyone, thank you so much for coming. I'm Charlotte Mulhern and I'm um, co-founder of OGIP along with Florence and a few others who are here today. Um, so we sent out a few questions before for the event, to do Rose if you haven't looked at them, we have them up on the, on the slides, but it would be great to get, um, to get your thoughts on some of the themes that we've been thinking of and wrestling with a lot um, whilst kind of forming OGIP. Um, which include a lot of themes around what you've already heard around diverse and diverse perspectives. Um, Alia and Katrina, as, as Florence mentioned at the beginning, are actually taking part in our research series on preventing sexual violence and conflict, of which Katrina's piece was the first one, and there'll be more to come, but that's obviously definitely not our sole focus um, for our organisation, so we'd like to widen the conversation out briefly. <coughs> so the first question is, um, something which we've touched on a lot is why is device diversity in peace and security spaces important? And that seems like quite a basic question because I'm sure that's something that we all truly believe in. But I think what's the more interesting and, and actually quite difficult question is how do we communicate the need for diverse perspectives to policymakers and how do we ensure that, as Katrina said, we are widening the table to make sure as many voices are heard. So I'd um, be really interested to hear if any of you have any thoughts on that? Thank you. My name is Anna Kello. I work as a um, youth and gender advisor for conservation resources. Um, the, the thing about diversity, for, in, in, in some of the contexts we work in, is like, what is diversity in, in the first place? So the, the, second, the second problem we faced with is sort of in identifying the diverse needs of, of young people. What, what, are, what, what, are the, what are the mechanisms? that are in place to enable this. Because in the context we work in, it's quite a challenge to sort of even have the right young people in, in, the, in the room. We work with civil society, but the question is they don't even understand what diversity of young people is. And it's sort of something where we're left hanging and say, how do you even derive to diversity and meaningful inclusion of young people? Thank you. That was really interesting, thanks. Does anyone else have any thoughts? Again, same name and introduce yourself. Uh, Becca, I work for War Child, um, actually as a conciliation resources partner uh, on the <laughs> youth peace building stuff in the Central African Republic. Um, young people and women are so regularly seen as a homogenous group um, by the people who we're trying to get into those spaces. Um, and so when we're looking at trying to 
get the, vo the collective voice of young people when there might only be that one seat at the table, if it does exist already. Um, I think what we've really learned is around the selection of participants for like focus groups and that sort of thing. So working with children that aren't in school or young people that aren't in schools might be exposed to some of like, the worst forms of child labour, that kind of thing. Um, because those are the voices that we're really missing. Because as uh, I can't remember who mentioned it in their opening um, remarks, there's so many times when the spaces that do exist are taken up by those from the most privileged backgrounds in even the countries that we're working in. That's great. Does anyone else have anything you'd like to add? I have something I'd like to add. Yeah, Katrina, go ahead. Thank you. So thank you for your question. I think it's a very important question to consider. And while you were saying that, um, I was thinking um, in terms of what is diversity, I think we need to ask ourselves every time that we're looking to involve young people and to have representation of young people, we have to ask ourselves, who is not there? We often ask ourselves who's there or who can be there, but who is not there? Who are the people who are consistently not represented? And how can we make sure that those people have that access? Um, and then we have to ask ourselves who benefits from whatever we're discussing or whatever we're deciding. Because those people who are benefiting or those who are not benefiting even more so need to be there. Um, and then the last thing I just want to say is um, I think it's very important that we ask ourselves all the time, what are the factors that are limiting the participation? So again, for example, in the DRC, most of the young women who are active in the coordination are based in Goma because it's easier for them to have access to internet. But they try to disseminate, you know, they try to disseminate information by going to rural communities. But again, what limits participation for a lot of those who are in rural areas are the forces and the rebel groups who are causing security barriers for the young women to go. So who, what is limiting them and how do we counter that? Um, because it's true, most of the time it's those who even in those areas who are more privileged or have, have more access that are mostly consulted. Thank you so much. Go to someone else in the room first and then. Hi. Uh, ooh. <clears throat> Pardon me, um, cold. Um, Cecilia, I did my master's in women business security last year, uh, and now I work part time for the Gender Justice Security Hub and the House of Lords. So um, I deal with policymakers every day, and it's not easy. Um, and just yesterday, I was talking to Florence about this just before this, uh, this wonderful um, event. Uh, bringing back foreign fighters to the UK. So a, a big topic, big discussion in the, uh, in the UK Parliament at the moment. And no one in the room was a person of color. No one in the room wa had a foreign background. Some people had, in the room had been involved in DFID FCO, but all from a very senior and sort of very detached point of view. And my youth intervention in that context was, and bear in mind, I'm not a policymaker, so I wasn't probably listened to as uh, the others were. Um, my, my comment to that was, but what do we do to prevent people from becoming foreign fighters? And if we don't have, and, and I have in no way ever been approached by um, sort of radicalization in any way, shape, or form. So obviously I come from very privileged background. So if we, I, admittedly, it's very hard to target people that can become radicalized in this, in this instance or uh, 
people that can be affected by the issues that we were just talking and they were just talking about. But they need to be in contact, in, in contact and in contexts where policymakers can indeed listen to them. Admittedly, it's very hard. It's not easy. Um, I'd imagine that British policy policymakers, mostly white male, do not want to engage with people that are traditionally uh, targeted by um, radical groups. But those are people that need to be involved. So how do we promote diversity? By going in those uncomfortable spaces and by talking uh, about these uncomfortable topics uh, where the language is being shaped uh, right now and we might make mistakes, but I think that is a way to increase diversity. Does anyone on the, the phone want to um, speak or on Zoom? Um, that's Hi, um, my name is Michelle Callender. I'm the International Strategy and Partnerships Manager at the Gender Justice and Security Hub. <laughs> at the Centre for Women, Peace and Security. Um, but my experience that I, I want to just quickly share relates to my previous role where I was at the Commonwealth Secretariat leading a youth peacebuilding initiative through the Secretariat. And I think one of the obligations that people who have access to policymakers have <coughs> is to share the privilege that we have with people that we know don't share that position. It's all very well to say that the same young people are being invited to the same fora, and that's absolutely the case. And I saw it happen time and time again where they were incredibly articulate, um, incredibly um, brave, clever young people. Um, but they were being invited to the same things over and over again. So um, I certainly reached a point where when I was reaching out to my networks, I'd say, I'd love for you to come, but what I'd actually love more is for you to bring someone who hasn't been here before, or maybe consider giving up your position this time to someone else within your network who hasn't been part of that. And I think we've got an obligation to try and extend those networks to the extent that we can. Or they do become what a colleague of mine called a self-licking ice cream, which was one of my favourite expressions. Um, and I know that I was guilty of doing it myself. There, it's very easy to reach into networks and um, access the thoughts and experiences of young people who are well-connected, who are motivated, who are driven to make change and to deliver change. But it's the young people for whom they're delivering that change or when they're delivering change on behalf of those young people that we need to, to try and reach out to. They're notoriously a really difficult group to access and I think you've talked about focus groups as being one way to do it. But if we can, in our practice, um, try and think about the person beyond the person that we're accessing and try and find ways to include them, I think that's a useful process to Thanks so much. Thank you so much everyone's really interesting interjections so far. Um, as well as OGIP, I'm also a Youth Advocacy Officer at Plan International and I just wanted to build on some of what you were uh, saying there from my own experience of getting young people into international spaces. Um, and I think something that those of us who work in this space um, definitely really struggle with is, is the timeframes um, and funding that are put on us by other organisations, mm. um, namely massive huge organisations like the UN who uh, have certain expectations around uh, accessing that space and I think are often guilty of that tokenism in the way that they approach organisations, for example, like PLAN, um, and say, well, we're committed to young people's engagement, we would love for you speaker to attend this event, 
and give such a short turnaround time for us to find someone to go to that event that it's difficult sometimes to not go to those people who already have passports, who already have visas, who are able to access that space. And I think we are also responsible for pushing back against those organisations and doing the work and saying it's not appropriate um, and these are the reasons why. And it may mean that yes, for a year or two years, that we may not as an organisation have a young person speaking at those events, but by doing so we're challenging the way that actually as an international system we run. Um, and then just a quick note on funding as well. I think flexible funding for youth organisations is so important to be able to access um, those spaces and get young people into those spaces on their own, not as delegations for plan or save the children or, or whatever it may be, um, for those young grassroots organisations to be able to um, fund themselves to attend these things. Um, there's not <coughs> enough flexibility in the funding models and systems that, that are currently at play. That's great. Thank you so much, Florence. I think I'm going to move on to the next question, unless there's anything hugely pressing. So the next question was, um, how can organisations encourage policymakers to centre youth voices in peace and security? And what steps can we take to increase youth participation in our own approaches? So I guess actually what we just heard at the end was touching on that. But um, And also we heard about focus groups at the beginning. But are there any other kind of very practical approaches that we either as individuals or as organisations can um, can take to actually start increasing. So I think like what Florence said at the end, um, around funding is a super important one. Um, but does anyone else have any other thoughts or Hi everyone, my name is Alex and I work for One Young World. So we're an organisation that um, connect global young leaders to find impacts to different solutions to different problems. Um, it's like an international forum. Um, I think in regards to that question, I think in order to increase youth participation, I think it's important to do really effective outreach. So actually taking the extra concerted effort to find these young people. I mean, I've only been in my role for nine days, but <laughs> <laughs> so I'm quite new, but Having done research and actually looking really deep, there are really incredible young people doing really amazing things from a wide range of different countries. So I think it's important to just, well, firstly, build on their own outreach capacities, which is difficult at times, but just taking that concerted effort to find young people from maybe under, underrepresented countries. I think the second way is, I think also, I think, I don't want to say word of mouth, that's a bit generic, but more kind of exposure, like kind of giving young people the platform to actually progress their ideas and ensuring that their initiatives are actually heard of and actually shared with other people. Because say if a young person had a really excellent initiative that works in gender equality, for example, then that might get word of mouth from someone from um, the World Economic Forum or something, or another initiative, or another grassroots initiative on the ground. I could then spread the word with their networks. And I think without that exposure to the wider networks, there's not really going to be much of an impact in ensuring that youth voices are heard. And not even just youth voices, like representative youth voices from different places. So I think that's probably one solution that I have. Uh, I wanted to add something. No one's going to speak, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm not sure who was going to speak. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Uh, I just want to add that also um, 
I think someone else mentioned it, but ensuring that young people have the capacity uh, or doing some sort of capacity building in, in these areas. So um, speaking on the context, for example, about gender equality. So in order for a woman in, in her young age, for example, before reaching this uh, phase where according to the, the leaders, she's not qualified yet, maybe also checking that she has the resources and the mentorship that she needs to make sure that she is qualified for this position by giving her the, the room that she needs and also um, making room for her on the table discussion of decision making and etc. but also to build her capacity to make sure that she's ready for this position uh, at first because like Speaking about uh, um, all the opportunities that young women have is, is good, but if they get there and sometimes that happens without building their uh, footsteps and mentoring them or giving them the same opportunities when building their capacities, then it's a, it's a waste of resource and a waste of an opportunity. So as obvious as it sounds, unfortunately, capacity building is a step that takes um that is sometimes lacking in some organizations or in some governments or in some policy making. Uh, and again, speaking of conflict, to put a woman uh, in this young age on the table without mentoring him, mentoring her, sorry, or preparing her for this uh, position in the, on the first half. And we'll just go back in the room again. Thank you very much. And I think um, what we've also tried to do as an organization is look deeply and see the informal spaces that are out there. And one of our learning is that there are these informal spaces that have not been tapped to where young people, the grassroots young people are, that how can we link them, how can we how can we reach them, especially in the rural settings. We have marketplaces, we have the village events where young people come in and how do we really formalize, sort of make those places formal for us to tap the young people. Another thing is that how do we enable or support this, the, the, the partners, local partners, for example, civil society, and have their sort of selection criteria of the young people they're supposed to work with. What are the criteria they use in trying to select the young people they want to work with? I think that's where the kind of barriers away from. The third part of it is that the young women particularly. There is another, there's an aspect of building capacity, yes, but also, there's also an aspect of sexual violence. When at the heart of gender inclusion, <coughs> when you want to look deep and understand why young women aren't engaging, it's there that you understand actually some of them are really victims. So these are the kind of things we're really looking at. Thank you. To your second point, it like this um, speaks to the localization agenda as well, um, and sort of looking at the restrictions that large donors put on like international NGOs of who their partners can be, um, and also how they can access money themselves. Um, one way that we're trying to address this ourselves is particularly an emergency response, trying to get um, large donors to be able to give to sort of the intermediary as the INGO, and then we are able to have pots of money that can go to youth-led initiatives, survivor-led initiatives, and community-led initiatives. So when we're doing the sort of a rapid needs assessment, there's money available when people are coming to us and saying this would be the best way for us to address <coughs> this problem right now in this conflict setting, we're able to give them that money with less um, strings attached than if it had to come through an uh, international NGO or if it had to come through an international donor. Um, and I think until we're able to 
sort of address some of the issues with um, funding restrictions, then being able to have proper youth-led or survivor-led initiatives happening on the ground and able to step up into those spaces, it's, it's not really going to work. And then just on top of that, INGOs love the idea of building a movement um, if they can put their brand on it. And I think INGOs in particular need to be able to take a step back and if they do uh, sort of provide funding or enable these um, movements to develop locally is to be able to recognise when they need to step away and not try and brand the hell out of it. <laughs> and yeah, I think a few of your points, I think OJP's uh, mission, as Florence was outlining at the beginning, we kind of have our three different pillars currently, one of which is advocacy, which is to kind of advocate the organisation to do more of the great stuff that you've all been talking about. And um, and I think one thing that we've learned is kind of what was being said at the beginning about being intentional about who you're inviting to these spaces and who we're reaching out to and who we're speaking to. And that's like a huge part of what we've been trying to do and uh, what we hope to build our organisation on. And then also on the outreach and partnerships part, which was um, spoken about at the beginning, we have a whole pillar dedicated to that. Because I think if we can connect these networks and even tap into these informal spaces you're talking about and make sure that everyone is, is sort of globally connected and we can get young people involved, we can hopefully help get more access to these spaces, which are often just hidden away from people who really need it and should be involved. So yeah, it's a lot of the work that we're hoping to do um, going forward. Does anyone have any other points left on, on this question or kind of related? Um, so really at the heart of what, our, um, what we wanted to do um, with OGOP was really marry the two agendas of uh, uh, youth peace and security and women peace and security as um, Florence Jason and Professor about in our opening um, speech. Um, and the idea of getting more agenda perspective into the youth peace and security movement and also getting a more of a youth perspective into the women peace and security movement as we really feel like this is kind of a nexus where there's, there's been a lot of disconnect and there tends to be two different conversations when really they could be they could be working in tandem without wanting to conflate the two um, someone said at the beginning but women and youth often get kind of taken into one bubble and we're really not here to do that but I think this is a really tricky, um, tricky conversation, but something that's super important to us. So I think one of the questions we had was how can we further enhance and promote the connections between YPS and WPS? And is it in civil society's best interest to do so? Noting all the pitfalls that we um, have spoken about already. Does anyone have any, any thoughts? Um, so in my spare time, uh, I volunteer for WILF, the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, which is, um, one of the very few organizations that not only takes a feminist lens but also an anti-militaristic lens um, at looking at, for instance, women, peace and security. And what I absolutely agree with you in, it's, it's, it's exactly that we don't, um, we, we have not yet been able to completely demilitarize uh, the agenda, partly because a big component of the agenda is peacekeeping, and m the, the majority of peacekeepers are military. And we all know, and, or I hope we all know, the problems with uh, peacekeeping forces, uh, and especially UN peacekeeping forces. We do see youth as, um, and, and it speaks to my point previously, as radicalizable, but not as, as peace builders. And when they are, when they do, when they are seen as peace builders, they're often patronized, and UN Women has been quite guilty of that, 
And I think it's one of the criticisms that Wilf will be bringing to CSW um, in a month. Um, I, I think that that is one of the connections, to sort of go back to your questions, mm -hmm. I think that is one of the connections um, between the WPS agenda and the YPS agenda is talking about anti-militarism and challenging it at the, we have the privilege of, of having the Women, Peace and Security agenda being a, a Security Council agenda. And so bringing that conversation in the Security Council, which has, you know, the P5 that are um, the biggest countries, the, the countries of biggest military expenditures. Um, and, and admittedly, it is hard. And I, I mean, coming from the UK, well, I don't come from the UK, but coming from the UK perspective, um, obviously, it is something that the UK does not want to do and does not want to talk about. Uh, but as civil society, which is which is the, the second part of the question, as civil society, I think we do need to bring those conversations in about anti-militarism. And I think that is the best way to connect. Because it's true that it, women and, and, and young people are not inherently peace builders. But if that's the label that we are given, why not exploit it? Um, and then start from there to then have a conversation about why not all women are peace inherently peace builders and why not all young people are inherently peace builders. But if that's a label that we are given for now, which seems to be, they haven't, haven't changed much in the 20, 20 years of the women peace and security agenda, well, let's start from there and ex exploit it in a way, even though I don't love the word exploitation, obviously. <laughs> One of our learning is the intergenerational. We I think we are a little skeptical about how the YPS was sold, was sold in our countries, for example, like working with women in isolation of others. And I think we have to be careful of how we promote YPS this time. That they have, we have to work with the with the others, like young people, the people, the inter intergenerational approach. I think is very very relevant because you don't want to do more harm than good. How would we bring on board other other people of different age groups and different uh, uh, race and gender and gender to support the inclusion of young people? Thank you very much. That was um, super interesting and really insightful. And yeah, it's something that we're I think still struggling with in working through as an organisation. It's something that we think is really important, but how best do we manifest that um, and how best um, how best do we really achieve these connections and what really what really is the things that we can bring out that are a benefit and what can we obviously do to, to reduce um, harm in terms of harmful stereotypes or anything, um, anything that kind of has been inherent in these two agendas. We obviously don't want to be reproducing those um, through the work. Okay, so, so I think this is, our, yeah, this is our final question. And this is something that we have spent about the past year um, as a group of um, as, um, having left LSE thinking about what we want OGIP to look like and the way we want our structures to work. And we really grappled with this question of what does an intersectional feminist organisation look like? Um, and it's something that we think about and we try to be very intentional about with everything we do. Everything from trying to make uh, our work accessible online, um, to we've spoken obviously to about publishing in different languages, making it um, accessible for different um, abilities, and also all the way through to kind of our governance structures. As Florence said, we don't kind of, we don't see ourselves um, as kind of a governance team. We don't really have a, a structure as such. 
we see ourselves in a temporary position. We really want to um, ensure that everyone gets a voice and everyone gets a say and that there are new people being brought in all the time to try and ensure that there is no kind of hierarchy in our work, which is actually something that I'm sure you all can appreciate is really difficult to do as well because you know, in a lot of senses hierarchies work in the workplace for a reason in some places and but that can also come with a lot of negative issues. So these are so this is something that you know we spent so much time thinking about and we'd love to hear your thoughts on what does an intersectional feminist organization look like and what steps do we need to take to center these values. As you all know, I mean people have worked for um, a bunch of different organizations here and um, organizations that claim to be feminist organizations with feminist principles don't actually treat their staff in the same way and people working for them. And I'm sure a lot of people can agree with that. We have a lot of conversations about this <laughs> as well, that's their time. So yeah, it would be really interesting to hear to hear your thoughts on this. If any of you have any thoughts. And also as a organisation, um, OJOP um, situates itself globally, so um, we have myself and Charlotte in the room here, but we have colleagues online all over the world. Um, but to frame this question, what does an intersectional feminist organisation look like um, for an organisation that is working in a global context with people um, in different contexts globally? Um, and obviously relationships and historic relationships between the global north and the global south in development spaces and, and what that looks like and how we need to reflect on that and be intentional on that as an organisation. It's something that's already been brought up today um, in these spaces. Um, so we would love to hear your thoughts and feedback and experiences that you may have had um, in those spaces also. I think flexibility and flexible because I, I call it a burden that you don't even see, but as you go along you discover, am I going to be able to cope and to you, if, to the organisation, it means that you're going to have to have people who have the expertise, but may not have what you have, may not have been to, may not have been privileged, but they really have what you need to go along. Yeah, thank you. I know that's really important, and also something that we've been um, thinking about a lot is like what our principles are as an organisation, of course, and our objectives, and then also our kind of decision is that we want to be not only. Obviously we want to have our core principles but we also want to be reactionary because we want to be able to evolve and progress and we don't want to just be taking up the space in a, in a place that's not helpful and so we really want to be contributor-led and to have the people that want to access our space be able to define what our agenda is and what, what um, steps, we want to, steps we want to take and not be too rigid in our framework. So flexibility, as you were saying before, is something that we... Um, really, really value. Does anyone else have anything? I have a lot to say, but can I just say one thing? Yeah, go ahead. Um, it's also becoming more interested in economics and fe feminist economics as a um, as a subject, as a practice, and it is an uncomfortable space to be, especially if you walk into a room full of economists that are not usually not usually look like us. Um, but I've, my experience with Wilf has been revolutionary for me just because I never thought of myself as a finance person, I never thought of myself as an economy person. Um, and I, I and, and many of my colleagues had been left out of critical spaces because that's where decision making is based, whether it is on climate change, on you know, any possible topic, at the end of the day, it's down to money. And so feminist economics is, needs to be a big part of it. Yeah, completely agree. Does anyone else have anything? Thank you. Uh, 
Um, I agree with everything that everyone else has said. I think the one word that's kind of sticking out for me is empowerment. So I think it's important that as a feminist organization, you do address the issues and you do address them from different perspectives. But I also think it's important to empower your audience that you're trying to reach. So, I mean, there's numerous ways you could do that. I don't know if that's maybe through maybe mentorship, or maybe publications, or maybe even events like these. And really just empowering and giving potential feminists the space to want to do these things. I think that will help kind of extend the ladder to maybe other aspiring feminist activists, or even just people that empathize with your mission and want to help. But I think it's important that there is that capacity to just empower others and also maybe feel empowered through your organization and the experiences that you have, like the diverse experiences you have. Mm -hmm. so empowerment was the main word for me that kind of stuck out. Yeah, completely agree. And we are trying as far as I said again at the beginning, we're trying to make sure our platform doesn't just focus on kind of academia and uh, you know, really kind of so blog posts or any kind of writing. We kinda of want to expand that space to include people who may be involved in sort of an artistic way that actually may not think of themselves as activists, but we can bring them into the space in a different way and not to feel shut out because they don't want to write, you know, a ten thousand word piece for us. Which not everyone wants to do. Hi, someone on the phone. Yeah, I just wanted to add something um, also related to what we were discussing in the beginning about diversity. So when feminist organizations generally think about being intersectional feminist organizations, um, there's a lot on the table and obviously a lot of things come up, but I've noticed that sometimes, unfortunately, uh, the, the, the sentence is, is harmful at times to use the word I am here to represent X group. And I believe that in, in certain settings, it's, it's not harmful, but sometimes, especially speaking about, for example, women rights and gender and everything that's very intersectional and complicated and diversity is supposed to be a big part of it. And the word is said, and, and there's no way that one person can represent everyone. So I believe that with speaking about intersectional feminist organizations, it's important to realize that um, just the word I represent all women, for example, or all Egyptian women is for me, for example, I can't, um, I can't represent all Egyptian women because there's so many factors and layers that I haven't experienced. And when even giving room for feminist leadership and, and women to speak up, it's important to realize that they each have different experiences and accordingly, they have to be mentored in a way that's different. And we need to tailor this um, experience and this mentorship in order for women or for young people to find the way to learn from the mentorship that they've been using, but to also get in their head that they, they're not like um, following a certain path that's already been decided for them. Uh, and, and with this comes a discussion that I think uh, Kristen mentioned about like being mindful of the fact that people come from different backgrounds, different areas, uh, coming from different continents, different countries, etc. Uh, is, is important when talking about safe spaces, encouraging uh, uh, safe spaces and people to speak up. I think the only other thing I would add is um, sort of recognizing when buzzwords are useful and when they can be harmful. Um, I think when in you know it's sort of recognized now that a, a feminist uh, sort of in the UK is is not a radical um, or revolutionary 
but in a number of the contexts where sort of feminist um, issues are really needed, actually it can be dangerous for us to sort of impose our labels. Uh, one, they can be very alienating for people that haven't had sort of an academic background and might not understand them in the first place, but also you will just be blocked out of certain spaces. Um, we struggle to get in spaces if we use terms feminist, whereas if we go in and say we're going in looking at sort of gender equality issues, then the door is much more likely to be open. So it's just looking through um, websites and documents and all that sort of thing for what value does this sort of buzzword mean and is there another way that we could phrase this in different contexts. Does anyone else have anything you'd like to add? Hi, so um, I'm Nikki, I'm the Communications Manager at the Centre for Women, Peace and Security, and I work on the Gender, Justice and Security Hub as well. Um, and it's just to build on this about well, what is feminist communications, and I'm not sure our centre has quite nailed it yet. Um, I'm hoping that we're going to be working on this and be doing some research on this through the Hub and the Centre. And everybody overlooks communication, everybody overlooks language. I don't mean just in terms of translation of language, but the language you're using. So really it's just to reiterate this point but also to look at, well, what are the mediums of communication that we're using? What are the ethics of these platforms that we're using? Should we be using these platforms? Should we accept that perhaps we shouldn't be using those platforms and not expect everybody to be in those spaces as well? So therefore, how are we connecting with people that are not on those spaces or on those platforms? Working in countries that I'm guessing you're going to be working with youth in conflict-affected countries and actually well, what that um, visibility means for them in terms of across those platforms again fitting into the communication and just really trying to take a feminist approach with all of your communications across your project and I think this is something that reflecting on myself in the centre that we all need to work on um, you know, as a whole as well so, yeah, just to add to that um, No, thank you, that was really useful. and the communications point is fully taken on board we have been wrestling with this for a while because um, not only are we quite a small um, separate group of people at the moment, we realise communications is so important for us to reach the groups of people we need to reach and how we communicate and what language we use, but as, as, as you say, like what platforms we use is super important and we're trying to figure a way to, to get better at that, so yeah, definitely uh, shared learning. Um, yeah, it was great to hear all your ideas. Um, around uh, the different things we talked about, including diversity in spaces. So we had a lot of conversations about um, the need for more diversity, but also the need to combat tokenism, especially in youth and peace spaces. I think it's <coughs> super important. It's something that we're that's um, a huge amount of things to address, all the way through to you know how can we make a feminist working environment, which I think a lot of us still struggle with, um, even though we have feminist principles. Um, it was great to see you all here today, and thank you so much to our two speakers, Katrina and Anya, on the phone. Um, yeah, we can give them a round of applause. <laughs> thank you so much. Um, and if you want to see their work, they are we're going to be publishing our upcoming research series. Katrina's uh, piece went up uh, this week. Uh, that was the first piece in our Preventing Sexual Violence and Conflict research series, and Ali should be coming out to be six pieces in total. Um, so if you follow us on Twitter, you'll be able to go through to our website and all of the information will be on there. See, so if you're an organisation that would be interested in partnering with us in the future, we'd uh, be really uh, grateful to hear from you. Um, but yeah, do keep in touch and follow us on Twitter. And thank you so much for coming.
that's it for today. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks to Katrina and Aaliyah for presenting, to Jean-Til for sharing her story, to all those who participated in such an interesting discussion, and to the organizations and individuals who have inspired our work and whose work we build upon. An additional thanks goes to Zoe and Becca at the Center for Women, Peace, and Security for their continued support. This podcast was recorded by Florence Waller-Carr and Charlotte Mulhern and was produced by Rotundo Chibiqua. Please do continue the conversation online by following us at, at @argenpeace and using the hashtag SpeakYourPeace.